Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to Maucast, episode number 38. Uh, Patrick is still out of town this week. He's on vacation. So with me here tonight, I have Jeremy Gunderson, my cousin, and uh, easily the smartest person I know when it comes to cybersecurity and pretty much everything tech. Uh, Jeremy, say hello to everybody. Hello, everyone. Want to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started here tonight? Yeah, so... My name is Jeremy, as has already been said. Um, I went to college for cybersecurity as well as uh, network systems administration. Um, currently, am self-employed, building out a business out of my attic. Uh, the American dream. Yes. Uh, the highlight, I guess you could say, of my college forays into cybersecurity was uh, going to cyber defense competition at Iowa State, where I placed first regionally with my team and third nationally on blue team, which for those of you who might not know the terminology, blue team is people defending systems. And I got an opportunity to go as red team, which is the attacking team. And hack a few high schoolers and it was very enlightening and kind of spooky you know i have to admit i remember you telling me over the years about all these competitions and every time thinking man i have no idea what he's talking about and I've, i told you this before i know just enough to be dangerous and and just enough to, enough to follow the conversation but not enough to <laughs> actually fully understand so you know kudos to you you are uh yeah you have a brain that functions much different than mine does you know, coming from the dude obsessed with politics and <laughs> I guess everyone has their own strengths. Yeah, weaknesses too. But uh, <laughs> so, yeah, no, I really appreciate you coming on tonight. Um, before we get started, guys, if you have any questions, um, comments, concerns, throw them in the chat. We'll get to them throughout. Um, and at the end, especially if you got any new topics that you want us to talk about in the realm of cybersecurity, um, we'll hit those as well. So tonight we're going to be covering uh, a lot of the hacks that we've seen recently um, and talking about is America prepared for cyber warfare? Um, tensions have been growing with China and Russia, and you've seen more and more atta uh, attacks in the news recently. And everyone always asks the question, what happens if they take down the electric grid? If they take down uh, all of our critical infrastructure? Can, can America defend itself? And if not, can America recover and retaliate? Um, so those are all the uh, topics we're going to be covering tonight. One other thing before we get started, though, you might notice that Jeremy does not have a camera. So before we get started, I wanted to show you everybody, everybody what it looks like. Um, I, feel, I feel like it's very important. So this is my cousin. Um, wave at the screen like you crazy guys who watch us are. All right. So let's get this kicked off tonight so first i want to jump into the easily the one that uh, the hack that people know the most about and that is the colonial pipeline hack so this happened back in may um a pipeline that carries 45 percent of the gasoline to the east coast was taken down by russian hacker group dark side um you see here in the cnbc story Colonial immediately paid the $5 million ransom, which I've been told is extremely low um, when it comes to ransoms for infrastructure that's important as a colonial pipeline, um, but then had to actually still regain control of the systems with their own, with their own software because the, the decryption key that they received as a result of paying the ransom was uh, doing it too slow. Um, Jeremy, do you know anything about this, about this hack, um, you know, from a, uh, much more expert perspective? 
Yeah. <clears throat> so a little bit of background on Darkseid as a group is they actually run a few uh, services on specifically the internet, uh, generally speaking, the dark web, as most people understand it. Uh, their biggest one was cryptocurrency washing, which is how they didn't get caught for taking $5 million off of the colonial pipeline itself. Uh, some of the other key notes that I could say about this specific attack, although we don't know the details of exactly how they got in or what they did, it's really common, especially in ransomware attacks, that you should plan to be able to recover everything from a backup. You should be able to just start with a clean disk, shove it in, and it should be able to power on. But obviously, as every ransomware, where they end up paying the uh, fines, essentially, they just don't have that capability or they've neglected that. Well, and I remember reading about how the technical infrastructure for this pipeline was decades old and running on software that only a couple of people even knew how to how to work on. Um, and the, I don't know, you know, from a layman's perspective, that's kind of scary. I, I know that uh, there are some benefits with using older software and that, you know, it could theoretically be more secure, but I don't see how that could be uh, the case in most scenarios. Well, in most scenarios, it's not. You know, as software ages, people have more and more time to poke at it and go, oh, if you do this really weird specific thing in this weird way, then the program reacts like this, and we can leverage that to do pretty much whatever you want with any piece of software. And that's the scariest part about cybersecurity is that even your own defense systems like your firewall, your routers, your switches, every single piece of software and hardware in between you and the attacker can, in theory, be used against you if that piece of software or hardware becomes vulnerable. And so what so what causes it to become vulnerable? So I guess let's let's boil this down to our basic to the to the basics. Um, Tell us about some of uh, what, you know, what exactly is a hack? You know, um, obviously it's gaining access to a system you're not supposed to. But what are some of the met common methods um, that we see? And especially when it comes to major uh, attacks against major infrastructure, I'm guessing that it's not always just some phishing email. It's probably, is there anything more complicated that um, we tend to see? So surprisingly enough, the phishing email works something, I think, like 40% of the time, which is horrifying, but uh, generally, yeah, it's really high. The, uh, the most common exploit that we were taught uh, going through college when we were being trained on how to read, create, deconstruct, and understand the fundamentals of making malware and finding these vulnerabilities is uh, something called a buffer overflow or a buffer overrun. Uh, I, I promise I'm not going to go too into the weeds of it. Essentially, think about like filling a cup with water. You just fill it with too much water, and then you have water on the table. That's mm -hmm. a really basic analogy for a buffer overflow. But that water on the table, you know, can you can do whatever with that now. Now that's out of the cup. The number one problem with these older systems is that not only are they running on limited memory, they're running on older programming ideas where having a set known static amount of space is fine. Whereas with modern programs, those sort of exploits just simply do not exist. Fair enough. So what we ended up seeing with this attack, and we'll, we'll cover this a little bit more later, um, but this, the, the, this freaked out everybody. You know, um, we saw people 
putting gasoline in plastic totes and plastic bags on the East Coast. Uh, We saw shortages, massive price spikes. The market, the stock market, obviously reacted extremely negatively. And a lot of pressure was put on the Biden administration to uh, retaliate and to basically get to the bottom of this, to fix it. And basically the entire world's attention, it seemed, was focused on this one attack because it highlighted how vulnerable some of America's most critical infrastructure is. Um, we see here that apparently the, the counterattacks were successful. Darkseid had their accounts, supposedly, allegedly, had their accounts drained and um, then disbanded. Um, do... Do groups like this really disband? Do they are they ever really taken down, or do they just kind of slink back into the shadows and come back? So I really feel like a lot of these groups, the group might disappear, but the people who are behind the group, a hundred percent, in to my knowledge, or they just straight up retire with the millions that they've made. Uh, I I really I don't think that the dark side group itself is continuing as that group but i definitely think that at least a few of their members are continuing in activities like this so how do groups like dark side exist uh i mean their entire spiel from from my understanding was ransomware as a service so they (laughs) they designed the ransomware sold it and then other hackers were the ones actually using it to target to target infrastructure and businesses and uh, whatnot. How does how how do they exist? Um, doing something that's clearly illegal. They, they don't. Uh, they didn't seem like just this shady. You know, they're they're not they're not the mob hiding underground. They seem to be rather well organized and funded for sure. So funny enough, uh, the, the business of making ransomware and discovering these exploits and vulnerabilities isn't itself illegal. So until Darkseid actually made an attack and essentially wrote their signature on someone else's system, what they're doing isn't necessarily illegal in most countries. It's this horrible gray area that is pretty dangerous. And especially in the, in the United States, we have a bunch of research firms that research malware, they make malware. That's just what they do. Um, One of the career opportunities I had getting out of college was that of a penetration tester, you know, someone who is quite literally paid to hack a network, sometimes without that network's explicit knowledge of the day, time, or who's going to be doing it, what they're doing. So there's definitely a legal niche for them to sit in and maintain their operations. Um, But as far as ransomware as a service goes, that tends to become really, really shady in a lot of countries. Um, Exporting ransomware or any sort of cybersecurity research, quote unquote, projects outside of the, if you start them in the U.S., you cannot send any of that outside the U.S. If you get caught with that, it's federal prison time. Like, it's no good. But, you know, until, really, we don't know where Darkseid was um, or how they were operating, Darkseid could have been sort of contracted out by a government somewhere, and the government showed them how to stay anonymous ish obviously and (laughs) you know peddle their malware and makes government or makes money for dark side and lets the government you know freely and opaquely i guess would be the descriptor here attack uh other nations that they want to attack without really needing to fear direct retaliation for it because well like the United States did, instead of going after the parent nation, they went after the group. Right. And I think that's what the Biden administration was trying to get at with, you know, immediately coming out, oh, it was Russia, it was Russia, it was Russia. And then Russia's like, wait, 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 no, it wasn't us. And America goes, okay, fine. But it was these guys that you probably paid. And um, 
I mean, we see we have a CNN article here where the U.S. is blaming China for hacks. And in the article, it talks about how there's not that the Chinese government is launching attacks on Microsoft and against U.S. infrastructure. This article specifically is about the Microsoft email hack. Mm. But that they're instead contracting with criminal hacker groups to do it. Um, so you're saying that's like a common thing, so deniability and whatnot? I would, I can only assume that it must be at least decently common. I can't imagine that, you know, a modern day nation uh, would very directly do these actions when it's so monitored and it's so in the public conscience now. Yeah, and I mean, I think the question becomes, at what point do you cross the line? Um, there, I mean, there's so many, like, does, does, for example, China hacking Microsoft's emails cross the line? Does the United States retaliate? It, you know, because it's not, it's not going to shut down the U.S. electric, the U.S. electric grid. It doesn't threaten our, the integrity of our national defense, but it is a strike against American citizens against American companies, you know, and, and you know they're doing it through these through these criminal groups. Can you can you can you retaliate against China? And I don't know. There's, it, it seems like this this reminds me a lot of the proxy wars of the Cold War. You know, Vietnam, Afghanistan, where you know Russia and the United States never fought each other, but they would arm other countries to then fight the other person. Um, it just it, it it brings back memory or not not memories, but it it reminis it uh, reeks of that for sure. Um, and a, a big problem with you know you can when your system is told that it's receiving a connection from somebody on the internet, all you're given is their IP address. And the really crappy thing about the current internet is we have been out of unique IPv4 addresses for uh, probably before I I was born. Um, <laughs> the uh, organization of internet number, or, bleh, wow, I butchered that acronym. Uh, IANA, which is short for the Internet, or internet Assignment of Numbers Association, which the whole thing they do as an organization is they dole out IP addresses to people or nations or states, etc. They have no more IP addresses to assign. So you can spoof and say, oh, well, yeah, I'm this address. And as long as you say it louder than who actually owns that address, functionally, you are that person. And then the second you're done with your attack, you can just not be that address anymore and go back to what your real address was. So, wow, that's interesting. So I don't understand how we could be out of unique IP address. I, so uh, for those of you who aren't in immediate contact with me, we don't have internet right now. I'm currently hosting this off of a hotspot. Um, and so I didn't know anything about IP addresses until this morning when I had to constantly Google stuff and I found out there's an <laughs> IPv4 and 6. Um, and I just, how are we out of unique IP addresses? That just, that, that flabbergasts me. Yeah. So, that, that flabbergasts me. Yeah. So when you think about it, an IPv4 address, shoot, I'm going to butcher this. 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, So an IPv4 address is 32 bits long, and it's a bit of a strange concept, but you only have 32 ones and zeros to work with that you can mix and match and rearrange to get a unique address for your computer or your phone. Um, there are a crap ton of connected devices in the world. I believe the there was a research group, I think it was as part of Shodan, and for those of you who don't know what Shodan is, it's, think of Google for hackers, specifically Red Team, that just want to 
go out and find an internet-enabled device that is potentially vulnerable to something, um, specifically Internet of Things devices like web cameras, uh, freight, uh, freight, like the boat, ah, I don't know how to describe this, like freight tankers, they, uh, they're often on Shodan. You can just see what... I need to gather my thoughts for a second. Okay. <laughs> but you could legitimately go on to Shodan and find the current state, like down to the degree that the wheel is turned on a lot of these ships that are out on the waters because they're internet enabled and they're not secured. Uh, so with that many systems on the internet, you quickly overrun how many addresses there really are. So then that moves into network address translation. And this is the big thing that broke internet security is your computer in your house has an IP address, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the same IP address as what's presented to the world. But, okay. it, but messages from the outside world still need to find its way back to you. So within that data packet, you can put, or you, it's like a letter. You give it a to and a from address, but you can stack multiple envelopes inside of those envelopes and send it off and have it route however you want. And your router doesn't really care if it's being used as a jump off point for somebody else's packet. It just gets the packet in, sees, oh, it was to me, and then I'm to forward it to someone else. Okay. And it just does it. Doesn't want to spend more processing time on it. That's how your internet stays fast. Okay. So you, you touched on this, the whole internet of things. Everything's connected. Mm -hmm. Is any... Is anything really secure, if that's the case? I mean, there's so much information that... that you have that anyone can gain access to you know we've got alexa devices in our house now um that are you know obviously always listening we've got you know smart fridges connected to the internet our thermostats are connected to the internet is anything secure at this point so that's a that's a tough question to answer because some the the definition of secure for iot keeps changing even in, even when I was going through college, when I was in college for the year that we were learning about how to secure those sort of devices, the definition of secure from the beginning of the year with IoT to the end of the year, essentially we threw out all of our curriculum from the first three semesters. And in the last semester, we're like, okay, if it's an IoT thing, you stick it in its own corner somewhere and just accept that it's vulnerable. Um, Fair enough. The issue with that I can't like, I'm not going to say that every IoT device is inherently compromised. Um, I, since we're out of IP addresses, that kind of shows the absurd scale of how many devices really are connected to the internet. Um, and to loop back around to my point when I went off on, on about Shodan, is there's about, I think it was either five or eight devices per person in the world on average. And that's that's how many of them are online. That's not even talking about how many of them have been you know, thrown out or scrapped or aren't being reported because they've been forgotten about in a warehouse somewhere. And consider the fact that there are billions of people with zero. Right. You know. That's, that's amazing, actually. Okay, so... All right, so I want to steer us back to um, some of these infrastructure attacks. Now that we know that none of us are safe and we need to go destroy our smart toasters with the hammer. <laughs> um, I'm going to jump on to... So Daily Caller talks about world's largest meatpacking company reportedly targeted by Russian hackers forced to shut down plants. So this, began, this was in the beginning of June. JBS Meatpacking, who does a quarter of the beef for the U.S., um, was forced to shut down his plant for a few days uh, as a result of more Russian um, 
infrastructure attacks. And this leads, both this and the Colonial Pipeline hack lead into the G7 and Putin summit, uh, Putin summit um, from the middle of June, where President Biden sat down with Putin to talk about, okay, first off, stop, you know, if whether it's the Russian government or not, the dark side was in Russia, we need to stop the attacks on American infrastructure and gave him a list of 16 different items that were considered critical infrastructure to the United States and said that if you attack any of these items, the United States will retaliate in kind, essentially shutting down Russia's critical infrastructure. Um, there's two things I want to touch on here. The fir first um, being, I'm not super concerned with giving everyone focus and flipped out. Oh my God, you know, Biden gave Putin a list of ever, all of our critical infrastructure. There's no way they didn't already know that. It, they, right. they, we don't need to give them a list that, that says, hey, don't attack our electric grid. They know the electric grid is critical, critical infrastructure. They're not stupid. Um, it was more the implication that don't attack these 16 critical critical things, but ev um, that was where I was more concerned. We did an episode about this just after the summit happened. But um, give me your give me your thoughts on this this posturing. Are we actually able to flex our muscles against an aggressive Russian Russian or Chinese hacking attempt, or are we just sitting here basically saying, "Please don't attack these things that'll shut our country down," but I'll let you I'll let you do everything else that you want to do. So. I guess the, the shortest answer here is, you know, can we fight back if they actually start going against our critical infrastructure? You know, is there anything we can do? Can we even realistically defend it? Uh, it's a one word answer and it's no. Uh, realistically speaking, there's just the amount of variance in how the United States has its systems configured and secured or sometimes not even secured anything further than how it came out of the box um, is impossible. I can't overstate how just mind-blowingly absurd the number of combinations there must be out there for securing stuff. Um, when I was at Cyber Defense Competition, we were handed copies of some compromised systems from really old hacks like talking early 2000s hacks we were given some really old junk boxes like that and you look at it and it's like how was this ever considered secure but obviously we found a way to secure them it's just it took a team of eight people sitting and looking at one box eight hours a night for a month all brainstorming, breaking it. Like we, we broke all of those boxes so many times and had to recover them. No company wants to do that. And that's the biggest problem with securing American infrastructure is while having your infrastructure decentralized, like we do, you know, small little mom and pop shops, you know, relatively speaking, making pumps for the Navy, making uh, your, your oil move from one part of the country to the other trucking industry you know transportation industry as well as a whole mm -hmm. um that is such a monumental undertaking uh that until last year we had no official standards for thankfully there is a standard out there called nist n-i-s-t and they have multiple grades of standards uh if you're a government contractee you're supposed to be up to a i think it's i forget the actual level name but you have to be essentially one under perfect score on their grading scale for cybersecurity because of all of these attacks because they can't reasonably give a blanket statement of here's how your stuff needs to be set up because everything is different you start in one company, 
they've got maybe that one company runs everything off windows you know that's cool you go to the a next company oh they run everything off apple that's awesome next company oh it's everything linux company number four it's a mix of all three you can't really give a blanket statement because all these systems are so diverse and that'd be the one upshot of centralizing a little bit of our cybersecurity. But the downside is literally nobody in cybersecurity trusts the NSA or the CIA. Uh, I would uh, echo that sentiment for a very good reason. Yeah. Um, well, that's the thing. I was reading through some articles earlier. And uh, basically, whenever they're talk they're criticizing other countries for their spying their hacking whatever um the other countries come back and like yeah well what about prism the you know the prism program that uh that edward <laughs> snowden leaked and uh <laughs> that's yeah uh, unfortunately i wasn't here when uh when patrick and mike redmond did the who was edward snowden podcast mike's been bugging me to wrap that wrap up that topic because uh they got shut down midway through because of internet issues uh, that may or may not have been CIA related. No. Um, but uh, no, I think that it's, it's surprising. They didn't have a standard until last year. I mean, these hacks, they're not new. They're just right. more in the mainstream. So what, well, and how, how could they, the way I worded that. Yeah. The way I worded that was a, slight bit misleading i suppose the standards have been being written for like five years but they were only completely published last year and they're still in the process of revising them in real time like you go to their web page and refresh it and oh there's a new item number 327 we've got to do that now to all of our systems great so but the internet's been around for decades Mm -hmm. And yet we're just now getting around a standard, creating some sort of standard to protect our critical infrastructure. I know that obviously it's in with it being decentralized. Every, it's within every company's best interest to do their best when it comes to cybersecurity. Boeing doesn't want to be vulnerable to a Russian, Chinese, Iranian, what have you attack because then the company goes under. You know, the profit motive should be enough to motivate the company to secure its own infrastructure. But the fact that Boeing, for you know, just going to continue with the example, plays such a critical role in our, you know, the, the military-industrial complex in the defense of our nation, you'd think that the government would be a little more interested in ensuring that its system, independently ensuring that its systems are secure. Yeah. Well, here's the the kind of sad part is that a lot of these companies really are interested in securing their stuff because as you mentioned it's a horrible look to get hacked in any capacity it by be it an experienced hacker who ransoms your company or by some kid in the middle of a cornfield out of his mom's basement you know that is equally as embarrassing to a company because it just shows hey our cybersecurity is so hilariously lax that it just might as well not exist. Uh, the problem lies with, from a management perspective, if if I walked up to you, James, and mm -hmm. said, hey, I secured your desktop. And if, if I was just your employee, how would you check that? How do you guarantee that I really secured it or that I really did anything to it? Because so many of these changes are just digging in really deep to a system and adding a line of text, flipping a zero to a specific number, not always one, it can be any number in some cases, but how do you, how do you guarantee that your security staff is actually doing what they say without having a hacker come in and show you that hey you guys forgot this which well that's where penetra penetration testing comes in right i mean couldn't yeah couldn't the, couldn't the government contract to have penetration tests done on some of these these companies so they can obviously they can offer to pay for it because money is no 
object to them, but the uh, yeah, the money printer go burr. <laughs> yeah, but the the cost in time to those companies and efficiency and how quickly the U.S. government is or isn't going to receive those goods based on the results of that penetration test. A lot of the time, it ends up being sort of a blissful ignorance situation of, well, I'm the government. I just know I'm getting my goods. That's as much as I need to know. And that's how much they care about a lot of their stuff. Um, they really didn't start caring too hard, you know, that there's this uh, cyber threat going on. Because, you know, 20 years ago, relatively speaking, hacking was a totally different landscape because it was just exploiting really simple, generally benign and quite stupid things. Like, oh, I can reach over across the internet and shut your uh, computer off. Isn't that funny? And then it turns back on 30 seconds later. Like, it's it's just stupid stuff like that. But people realized pretty quickly, especially in the last 10 years, like, oh, we can make obscene amounts of money off of this. And with the rise of crypto and people better understanding how the internet as a whole actually functions and how to abuse the parts of the internet that are broken because we keep hanging on to IP version 4. Um, it's, it's just ridiculous. A lot of the security patches uh, that you see come through for your network stack are just simply removing features because they've become insecure because people are starting to abuse them now. Interesting. And so, and from a government government perspective, I feel like we, as a nation, have taken for granted the fact that we were on top, and uh, oh, nobody can touch our tech infrastructure. No one, and then we just kind of lazed about and uh, let the rest of the world, namely our near peer competitors, catch up. And now we realize they're po they pose a threat to us after they've already started doing damage. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know. 100%. Maybe maybe I'm missing something. Okay, well, I'm right, and that's that's terrifying. I really wish <laughs> that I would have been wrong there. Um, no, no, you, you hit the nail so on the head. So what about our offense? Great. What about our offensive capabilities, though? So is this sort of a mutually assured destruction scenario where, you know, China takes out our electrical grid, and so we hit back and, you know, take down that grid and the Yellow Gorges Dam just starts flooding everywhere. You know, is this sort of a, you know, tit for tat kind of like, uh, well, the Cold War with nuclear weapons? Um, That has really yet to be seen because a lot of the, a lot of the attacks that other countries do towards the United States I'm sure are at least partially because they believe that the United States is also doing something wrong against them. But the nasty thing is we don't really hear those reports. We don't see the impact of it until stuff like Stuxnet. I don't know if you quite remember that. You might have heard of it. Where I don't. Okay. I don't. So it was a virus that uh, the United States deployed in the Middle East specifically tailored to overheat and just cause a meltdown at a nuclear power plant. I believe it was in Iran. And Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, the, the capability is there. The problem is we were just infinitely more vulnerable than these other countries because as you said before you know we're the we've kind of sat back and gone well we created the internet quite literally the internet started in the united states uh why should we need to worry we should know how it works because we made it but a lot of these countries have maybe not overtaken the united states in every way but they're they're certainly getting close in some ways. And the fact that a lot of 
uh, the infrastructure in the United States, such as our electrical grid and our internet capabilities is relatively speaking, very antiquated does not help in the slightest. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, when it comes to antiquated infrastructure, that's not only applicable to it, to the internet um, and to our cybersecurity. But I mean, if you look at our factories, I hear this all the time, you know, a lot of our factories are built turn of the century. And I mean, 20th century, not the 21st. Um, <laughs> I mean, it seems like this is so by, have you, ha, have you looked at um, Biden's so-called infrastructure plan at all? I haven't looked too deeply into it, but I was I was pleasantly surprised because it is a step in the right direction, regardless of what it in exactly entails. Right. Well, yeah, I've got like 40 some pages of notes because I was preparing to do an episode on it before I realized that it would be like an hour and a half long. Ah. Um, it, yeah. And <laughs> so while there's a lot of bloat in there, as there is with any two point five trillion dollar spending bill, um, about 600 billion was going to physical infrastructure. And then another three to 400 million or billion, excuse me, was going to cybersecurity infrastructure to techno uh, technological infrastructure. And I think that, you know, regardless of your, of your personal feelings towards president Biden, his administration does seem to grasp the importance of repairing American infrastructure um, and I think that it has personally that it has a lot to do with our much more combative stance with our near peer competitors, um, namely China, and the fact that we're that we are taking a mutually more aggressive stance toward towards each other. And so I I am excited to see that um, we're finally doing something to modernize. I'm just surprised that it took so long. I guess, and you know, right. in the meantime. Because you know everything's held up. In the meantime, are we are we going to be are we safe basically? And I, from what from our conversation here tonight, I think the answer is no. Yeah, at a national level, the answer is no. On at an individual level, um, we went through this, you know, kind of what's the mindset of a hacker? We went through that in both red team and blue team discussions. Um, you know, if I'm looking to get the most amount of money for the least amount of time invested, I'm not going to attack, you know, this, you know, somebody's aunt or grandma in their, you know, home who, you know, yeah, there might be a credit card number or two in there with maybe a hundred, 200,000 tied to that line that you can spend. Okay. You know, that's, that's money, but you, then you look at these pipelines that will just throw $5 million at you instantly if you're in. So people who are going to hack and who are going to do illegal activities like this, generally speaking, they don't intend to target individuals. They tend to target companies or an entire sector of stuff. That makes sense. So there's one other question that I wanted to that I wanted to ask you, and then I've got a couple of questions that have already that have already come in to me. But mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we talked earlier about how Darkside disbanded and how a lot of these attacks aren't being carried out by the countries themselves, but rather the criminal hacker groups that are contracted by countries um, or that just do it for shits and giggles. Um, so. You know, we used to hear about a lot of these groups. The Anonymous was the big one. Um, you know, their whole, whole V for Vendetta, Guy Fox, <laughs> Get Up. Um, what they had a very good one. What, what, you know, they, <laughs> yes, they did. Well, you know, as, as uh, Guy Fox is becoming a little more um, well known. Uh, with you know, over the last couple of years, between the comparisons to V for Vendetta, nineteen eighty four, Brave New World, what have you, um, I feel like now would be the time for them to uh, rear their head. But it seems like we haven't heard anything from them for at least a few years now. Um, 
I don't know what 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 happens to these groups. And first off, how do hacker groups form in the first place? Because I've always been under the impression that they're very individualistic and uh, libertarian, that they don't work very well together. So my take on how they form is that you have someone you know, one person who kind of starts the whole group, you know, they make a name for themselves on the internet doing various things. Could be good stuff, could be, you know, stuff that's giving back to the cybersecurity community, doing legitimate research, or you have people who aren't doing, you know, good stuff, you know, they're getting in, hacking people, taking credit card info, socials, all the nine yards. But they end up coming together more or less by chance just they happen to be attacking the same thing or one person gets into uh say say two attackers are going at the same company one person gets in first the other person sees that they're in there and gets in alongside them with a similar exploit or vulnerability that they're able to leverage and they kind of happen to bump against each other and realize, oh, we kind of have the same goal here, the same ideal, maybe just something in common, just enough that they're willing to work together and share a little bit of knowledge about what they know about that specific attack. And sometimes, sometimes these groups are very ethereal. They come together, they do one attack, and then they're just gone but sometimes they stick around like anonymous and they make a brand out of it. Okay. So then what, what destroys it? The, you know, anonymous in particular, because they were, they, they didn't, you know, attack a pipeline. Um, they didn't have the U government come down on their head. It was always my understanding that, um, there was some difference within the group and then they just separate um you know with the rise identitarian politics in the united states that that's really what destroyed the group but i don't know if you know anything that i don't i anything that i could say about it would just be speculation but i my speculation is that they either just ran out of targets or ran out of ideas or just got bored they've been doing it in for a long time they're one of the more long-running groups fair enough i think that uh, we may have frozen uh on youtube and uh and on twitch <laughs> looks like we're frozen at least but i mean that's not surprising have a uh like 50 kilobyte per second upload speed so um, so the other, the other, so the, one of the questions that I got in was, what is it? Do you, do you know anything about this? Uh, sorry, I didn't quite. Solutions of the internet. I didn't quite catch the whole question there. That, that hotspot's not doing you too well. Well, I, yeah, that's. Unfortunately, I think it's the best that we've had. It's 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 chugging, that's for sure. Yeah. Um. So it was about the Internet 2.0. What is it, and what are these these evolutions? Of it? So, uh, Internet 2.0 is something that I haven't really. I haven't really seen or taken too much of an interest in because internet 2.0 might be a nice concept from what I can see is that essentially it's going to be you buy a subscription to this company and this company now essentially owns that all of that data that would normally go out onto the regular internet, but instead you're just trying to funnel everything through their specific version of the internet. But at the end of the day, in order for internet 2.0 to work, the whole 
the world would have to move to it, or there has to be some sort of compatibility between the two. And ultimately, I don't think it's that much safer than simply turning on a VPN. And all of this is pretty much just at a glance here. Um, it really looks more like this Internet 2.0 is uh, a company trying to sell their own router software that has their own security systems on it, which is fantastic that a company can do that and that they're attempting to help. But I don't believe that it is anything incredibly revolutionary in terms of cybersecurity. Uh, at a, as someone who has this sort of stuff available to them already, I don't see much of a benefit but to the average person at home, you know, who just plugs in their router and it works, this is pretty great. 